Okay, today is May the 4th, 2010. Uh, remember that we're going to have our Friday night at the movies this Friday. And um, I know what the movie is going to be, but I can't remember the name. Uh, something about the ultimate friend, the best friend. Anyway, and if we can if we can get Charlie cranked up, maybe he'll bring the cartoon that we can start out with. <coughs> and Vi's service, uh, I, I imagine you all know by now that uh, Vi went to be with the Lord on the way to church Sunday. And so we'll have a memorial service for, here, uh, for her here at uh, 10.30 Saturday morning. So I think that's all we've got. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. A few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for another day of Your grace, another day that we can see You work on our behalf. We have much to learn and not much time to learn it in. So we pray that You will help us to focus on Your mighty Word this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started, there was uh, two things that caught my eye in, a, in an article. I'm not going to read the articles, even though they're short. I'll just give you the gist of it. This says that polls show that four out of five Americans distrust government. I figure that's probably around, what did I say? I think it's around 250 million people out of the 300 million in this country that don't trust the government. That's a lot of folks. And it says that the also the statistic of where people think that government is a major threat to personal freedom is up from 18% to 30%. And then one other little article caught my eye. It's, this one's amazing, the, the, the figures are to me. It's entitled, The Government's 10,000 10, Commandments Proved to be Costly. And there was um, a poll that was taken. And... It says that, uh, let's see, what is the Federal Register? Let's see, they had a, um, it says Clyde Wayne Cruz is the vice president that, of this institute that made this poll, and it says, or this study, and it says that the federal regulations cost the economy more than $1 trillion last year and included more than 3,500 new regulations, and that cost did not include the the cost of running the running these agencies. So, if you put those together, the cost, the estimated cost of these regulatory agencies to enforce these new 3,500 uh, new regulations was a cost of about $54 billion last, last uh, year. 
So the federal government spent about $3.5 trillion a year, according to the current budget, adding in the cost of those 10,000 uh, commandments. And it brings the, tra the price tag to nearly $5 trillion, uh, which is one-third of the uh, GDP each year. GDP, that's the gross domestic product. In other words, that's the cost of all the goods and services, uh, products that are produced in this country in a year. These regulatory agencies, uh, the cost of running them and the burden on the people uh, come out to, this says, um, one-third of the total uh, grand uh, domestic product. <laughs> Five trillion dollars. Yeah, I see y'all all looking at me with your mouth hanging open. That's what happened to me. Five trillion dollars a year, which is one third of the whole GDP. Well, uh, we can't let that or anything else distract us. We're going to keep keep on keeping on, which means we're going to take the time to redeem the time by studying God's word. So turn to First Thessalonians chapter two. Starting in verse 14. Remember, we had a long verse there. I mean, not a, excuse me, not a long verse, but a long sentence. It takes in three verses. So if you are there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. He's just comparing what the Thessalonian believers were experiencing as compared with the Jews in Jerusalem. The Jews suffered from their countrymen, which were fellow Jews. Thessalonian uh, city, the, the city-state there essentially, was uh, made up of Gentiles, and so they were suffering from fellow Gentiles, from the idol worshipers and those who were just uh, pagan all the way and also from Jews. It doesn't talk about Jews here, but in other words, they, they are suffering in the same fashion. Verse 15, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hiding us from, excuse me, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. With the result that they have always, that they always fill up the measure of their sins. And we'll stop right there because that's where the sentence stops. We won't go into the rest of it because we like to take it a sentence at a time. And why is that? Because it's the, a sentence is the basic unit of thought. And we can, by the time you study some of, uh, or, or just one of Paul's sentences, it's like, studying a whole paragraph from somebody else because he he's able to string it together and there's a lot of thoughts uh, or a lot of concepts in that one thought. So we're going to 
see where we're here. Let's start at verse 15, where he says, Who killed both the Lord Jesus. See in verse 15. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. But we're going to start with who killed the Lord Jesus. If I can find mine. Here it is. This is yet another scripture to refute those who claim that Jesus did not really die on the cross. And therefore did not rise from the dead. You know, do you all know what group of people allege that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross? Anybody know? Muslims. They don't think that Jesus Christ died on the cross. In fact, someone died for Him. And he, was, uh, he, he didn't pay for the sins of the cross, I mean, for the sins of the world. Uh, he was just a man. He was a prophet. Paul is not denying anti... Uh, is not being, excuse me, anti-Semitic by his remark. He's simply stating a fact of history. Romans carried out the execution, but only because they were pressured to do so by the Jews. And I don't have to elaborate on that. You full, all know full well the account where the Jews were pressuring the Romans through Pilate to execute Jesus Christ. Now, Pilate didn't want any part of it. In fact, he suggested that they uh, substitute Christ with a, another uh, guy who was a hardened criminal, and yet the Jews would not have it. They wanted Christ to be uh, sacrificed. It was God's purpose to bless all the families of the earth through Israel, Genesis 12:3, And in that, we have the promise. God made Abraham a promise that all nations of the world were going to be blessed through him. Now, how could that happen? Do you remember? Jesus Christ came from the line of who? Well, David, and David came from the line of what? Abraham. That's how all the world was going to be blessed through Abraham. At least that's one, one, one thing. What else did I ask you last time that was in that same verse that y'all didn't seem to recollect? Do you recollect it? Recollect it now that you heard it once before? And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. There's a lot in that verse, isn't it? Bibliology, we've got, we got to put some muscle on that. They were to be His messengers of grace, that is, the Jews. God chose a people. He started with Abraham that was a Gentile living in the, in the land of uh, Ur of the Chaldees. And from him... Became he, he made a race. So Abraham is the father of the Jewish race. Somebody else is the father of the Jewish nation, which is Moses. So, he chose this unique people to be his messengers. They were, carry, they were to carry out throughout the whole world the message of salvation. And he, was going, he, he gave them the law. The perfect law, and of course they perverted the whole the whole deal. They failed miserably in this mission, even though he gave them his promises, covenant, prophets, the law, the temple, 
He gave them the Scriptures as well as their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what did they do? They rejected the Scriptures and killed their Savior. And then I wanted to add the note there that you might remember. We are no better than they are. You and I put Jesus Christ on the cross as much as they did. Actually, nobody had the authority or the power to put Christ on the cross. He went voluntarily. But he went voluntarily because of the love and the grace that he has towards he had it towards these Israelites and these Jews who rejected him. He has it towards us. He has it towards everyone. So in saying that, this is not an anti-Semitic statement. It's just a, fa- a statement of fact. Even today, even though God has blessed the Jews, He has regathered them back to the land and they are prospering. They are surrounded by an ocean of people who hate them and want nothing more, or nothing, I should say nothing less than exterminating them. And they have tried every way they possibly could to do that, and yet God has sustained the Jews. And make no doubt about this. The only reason that Israel still exists as a nation is because it is God's will and because of His grace. It's not because of who they are. It's because of who He is. And I could take you through a trip through the Bible and show you where he had prophesied that this is exactly what he was going to do. He was going to bring them back in unbelief. And one reason that he's bringing them back there, <coughs> excuse me, other than to show that he is faithful and his word is true and he does what he says he's going to do, he eventually is going to bring all the nations and all the people of the world to that spot. And then he's going to deal with them. The great armies of the world are going to converge right there in the valley of Megiddo called Armageddon. And he's going to take care of business then. It's not that God isn't in control and all these people are moving in. It's going to be a a real contest whether Israel is going to survive or not. There's no contest. God has already said what's going to happen and it's being fulfilled right before our eyes. And people are blinded because they're in their little niche. They've got their own little doodads and all the little things that they have to do, oblivious to what's really going on. And so the Jews are being protected and sustained by God today. And there will be Jews on this earth until Jesus Christ returns and sets up His millennial reign. And then the Jews are going to be recognized like they haven't been in millenniums. The whole earth is going to be subordinate to them in this sense. God requires that all nations of the earth will bring tribute to Jerusalem. And as the Jews have been uh, outcasts, they've been the scum of the earth as far as the Gentiles have been concerned. And that is because God has allowed it. They're being disciplined for their big black blot. Blackout or blot out, they rejected their Savior. But He's brought them back there in His time for His purpose, and it's going to bring Him, it brings Him glory to do this. But when He returns, it's the Gentile nations that are going to be under the heel of the Jews. And anyone, any nation that does not bring tribute to the Jews will have no rain. God will just cut off their rain. How long can a nation last without rain? 
not too long. So this is a big deal about the Jews, isn't it? Every day uh, you, you read things that are about the Jews. But every time you see in the newspaper or hear something about the Jews on TV, it is a testament that God is in control and the Word of God is true. No nation has ever come back after 2,000 years of oblivion, lost their, lost their language, scattered throughout the whole earth. No nation has ever done that. And no nation ever will outside of the Jews. God said He was going to do it and He's brought them together. And now they're a nation. And they're being protected. And they're going to stay there. There's nothing in the Bible that says they're going to be routed, that they're going to cease to be a nation again and then come back later. In fact, it says just the opposite. Isaiah 11 and 11. So we need to be emboldened by this. It needs to show in our attitude and our character and the way we speak about the Bible and Jesus Christ and God. The Jews. What do you think? The whole Bible from beginning to end is about the Lord Jesus Christ who is a what? Jew. I've been... Uh, well, Carrie and I have been watching some of these movies of the World War II era. And it's... We have to read quick because it's in German, most of the uh, subtitles. Really good movies. It kind of gives you an idea how fast a nation can go under and how it starts out subtle. And because people are asleep, the encroachment continues at a more rapid pace. And before you know it, it was too late for Jews to get out. So, the next thing we have is also what we had here was who both killed the Lord Jesus, now we have, and the prophets. God sent prophets to His people to warn them that if they didn't, didn't return from their wickedness, He would judge them. Rather than heeding the warning, they killed the prophets. Gracious warnings always come before judgment. That is an important principle. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians for their rebellion. And the southern kingdom went into captivity for 70 years in Babylon for their disobedience. See, this is the way God operates. He'll be dealing with a nation. In this, in this case, it was the Jews, the Israelites. Well, here would be the Jews. They had already... Uh, <clears throat> the Jews... Uh, I mean, the captives from Babylon, when they came back, went to where? Judah. That's when they start being called Jews. So, when, when, when His people start to be in rebellion, God will use another nation to discipline them. That's what happened to the northern kingdom. And they went out as a nation. And have they come back as a nation? Oh, the trick question. <laughs> I don't really want to get that deep in eschatology. I shouldn't ask those kind of questions uh, because I don't want to get away from where we are. Uh, Yo, it's an unbelieving unbelieving nation now, but does that include the northern kingdom, the Jews that are from the northern kingdom? Have you ever heard of the uh, ten lost, lost tribes of Israel? Well, they're not lost. God knows where they are. And when the Jews have were returned... 1948, May of 1948, what happened was they were all the Jews from all the tribes. 
And when God regathers them again at the second advent, they're going to be all the Jews from all the tribes. Uh, There's so many ideas. Some people, if, if you get into replacement theology, y'all remember what that is. I taught that. Very easily people think that we are the descendants of the lost ten tribes. Sometimes it's called British Israelism. Uh, it's, I don't want to get into all that. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm drawing the line here. But the point is that these people that God has dealt with in a certain special way don't get by with anything. Nobody gets by with anything with God. One thing that always astounded me is when um, Moses went to the will went into the um, Moab. He got married, had a son. He was going back to to Egypt. Now he was going back to Egypt to be the one that was going to lead him out of bondage. God was doing it, but He's going to do it through Moses. And <clears throat> there was a problem. There was one minor thing that. Moses didn't do. I don't know if he forgot it or just didn't want to do it. But I think it was he heeded his wife. He heeded, he listened to his wife and it nearly got him killed. Because when he was going back to Egypt, he was crossing through the desert. God had a little little uh, talk with him. Moses, your son isn't circumcised. What's the deal? And Moses was struck by God and he came within a breath of dying because he disobeyed God. And finally, Moses' Moses's <laughs> lovely wife went ahead and circumcised the boy because evidently Moses was, didn't have the strength. He was about to go. And because he was circumcised, God pulled off the judgment. But it didn't cut any ice with God. Whether it's Moses or anybody else, you don't get by with it. God could have risen, could have made out of a rock whatever he wanted to. So Moses didn't get by with it. We don't get by with it. And the Israelites don't get by with it. And the USA will not get by with it either. Always grace comes before judgment. And we're in a grace period and have been for a long time. But that grace is quickly running thin. So the ones that went into Babylon returned to Jerusalem after 70 years. Now, y'all remember, because I taught this, they were in, in Babylon for 70 years because what? Because for, for, for the, they, they missed 70 sabbatical years. And so they were going to take that sabbatical year one way, in other words, year of resting, not going out and planning and doing so forth. So God says, okay. You think you can get by with ignoring me? <laughs> you could have done it the easy way. If you had obeyed me and let your land lay fallow for a year, every seven years, if you would have done that and trusted me and depended on me, I would have just opened up heaven and given you all the blessings that you could possibly hope. But you wanted to do it your way. You think that you can ignore me and not get by without, without taking the step? You're going to take them. Only this time it's going to be in captivity in Babylon. It's not going to be so pleasant. But after the 70 years were done, 
What happened? The whole scene changes. Babylon was taken over by the Medes and Persians. When? Seventy years after they went into captivity. How about that? Isn't that a big coincidence? The leader of the Medes allowed them to go back to Jerusalem, build a temple, the whole deal. What did they do after they got back to Jerusalem? Went into defiance again, didn't they? God destroyed their nation and scattered them throughout the world. That happened at when? 70 A.D. Again, warning, warning, warning. He's trying to get our attention. God means business. You defy Him at your own risk and your own peril. So their nation was restored, but they remain in unbelief. They will not acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Messiah until they experience the worst suffering of all during the time of the tri- or during the time of the tribulation called Daniel's 70th week. Does that ring a bell with y'all? <clears throat> Turn to Matthew chapter 23. This is neat. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Now, if you have a certain kind of Bible, you know that this is Jesus speaking. We know it is because it's in red. (laughs) I say that tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Um, Some people say, if it's not in red, it don't count. While we're in... Chapter 23, let's do a little something here that I think uh, would be neat. In verse 13, put a little number one by that. That's the first woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now go to verse 15. Put a little number two there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23, which is where we're starting. I mean, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse five, uh, 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, this would be number 6, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's number 7. 7 is the number of completion. Do you think Christ was trying to make a point? I believe He was. But for our purpose, we start in verse 23. He says, Woe woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, uh, how, how, how big is dill and mint and cumin? Dill... Deal is little bitty, isn't it? 
I'm not sure what coming is, but I'm sure I'll get the definition of coming. <laughs> oh, sorry. Anyhow, uh, it's some kind of herb or uh, what? Oh, cumin. That's how much I know about it. All right. All right. Well, it's uh, it's little. It's little bitty something. See, seeds and uh, that type of thing. And he says, you you pay attention to this. You're very careful about that. But the real big issues of justice and mercy and faithfulness, you miss that all together. You don't care about that. You just care about being very precise and really being self-righteous is what it's talking about. Then verse 24, you blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. (laughs) Do you know what that means? Strain at a gnat. I mean, you can swallow a gnat and not even know it. But they're straining over the little tithing things, little things that really are somewhat incidental. And the weightier things that are really what it's all about, they miss altogether. And so he's, he's given a, a, a metaphor here. It's, you're straining at a gnat, but the weightier things... You just swallow, just like as a camel. Can you imagine swallowing a camel straining in a net? I'll tell you the way my dad used to say this, and I've always remembered it. I've seen it illustrated over and over and over and over again, especially in our society. He'll say someone would be penny-wise and pound-foolish. You ever heard that? It's the same thing as straining out a net swallowing a camel. <clears throat> Where it usually plays out is when you're in a store somewhere. And they will be very... Here's a good word for you. Persnickety about some little something that doesn't matter at all. That doesn't bother them at all as to holding your feet to fire about something. But the more weightier issue of offending a customer to where they'll never come back, they don't care about that at all. They're, let me give you an illustration. I hate to tell myself, but it's the only one that comes to mind. Um, Gary and I bought some chickens at Whole Foods in Houston, and they were frozen. And we lived in Brenham, so we came back, and um, it was about two or three weeks later, uh, we decided to return those chickens because um, I don't even know why, but I know I was I was going to do it. And I went to this store, and some Orientals had taken over the store. It was not the ones that started it. And I came back and I said, I'm going to bring these back and here's the receipt. I had the receipt right there. And it was this oriental guy said, uh, I, well, we can't take those back. I said, well, why not? He said, well, it's been two or three weeks since you bought it. I said, it was frozen when I bought it and it's still frozen now. Uh, you know, what's the deal? I have the receipt. It's, nothing's different about it. I live in Brenham. I couldn't bring it. Back, I'm not going to make a whole another trip unless I'm on my way here. I'm trying to just be reasonable with him. No, that's just what. No, just like this. He said, "We're not taking it back." I said, "I said I've been doing business here for about ten years. I have spent thousands of dollars in this store, and I want you to know that if you don't take this back." I will never darken the door of this store ever again. And I will tell everyone that I know 
how rotten you are in this store too. And you know what he said? No. Oh. I can't tell you what came in my head. I was so tempted. I wanted to take those chickens. They were in this sack and just throw them through the plate glass window. That's how mad I was. I mean, that's what I was thinking. The only thing I was trying to do then was control myself, not to throw those chicks or beat him all over the head with it. It was one, one or the other. I, I'm again, I shouldn't be telling you this, but uh, and I'd like to say that I wasn't a pastor then, but I was. Um. So I walked out of there, and I, then it hit me. I, you know, what Penny Wise in town for this. He may have has saved a few measly dollars on taking those chickens back. But I told him it would cost him all the, all the business that I would have in the future, and I've already spent thousands of dollars there, and I would do my best that everyone else that ever that I knew that ever went there would never go there again. He didn't care. He got his chickens back. He saved maybe $2. That's penny-wise and pound-foolish. And that's the same thing that these Pharisees were, what they were doing. They were taking care of the little, little bitty things, but the big things they completely were oblivious to. And that is what legalistic people do. They're self-righteous, and they are penny-wise and pound-foolish because they're missing out on what's really important. Now, I didn't mean to go to that detail in that verse, but uh, I just did. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean out the outside of the cup of the dish and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You see, these, these um, Pharisees would make sure that they, uh, if it was a one ounce of, of cumin seed, that they were supposed to tie. Oh, they get it right to the exact. They might take a few little seeds out. Oh, yeah, it's, I got it exact. Perfect. But they were cheating the widows. They were cheating the poor. They had no mercy, no concern about it. They were, they were br- being bribed and everything else. So, <clears throat> they were cleaning the outside of the dish. In other words... They looked like they were a clean dish, but only on the outside, on the surface. Inside is where all the corruption was. Verse 26, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Now, what he's actually saying here, what it means is you can't be presentable on the outside before God unless you're clean on the inside first. And the only way to be clean on the inside is believe in Jesus Christ and all your sins forgiven. Then you're clean on the inside. Then you can become clean on the outside. Then the morality and the faithfulness and the mercy and all these things that you show others are coming from from the right motivation. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Same idea here. They used to have... Do you know that they would go on... on uh, right before the Passover and they would paint all these um, tombs, make them look real pretty for the Passover. And sometimes there's all type of garbage and everything you think of on them. And they never cleaned that off, just paint right over it. But moreover than that, what was inside that tomb? Dead men bones. Corruption, rotting, all this. And so that's what they were what they were like. Verse 28, Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. They're making a big deal out of this, see, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Now see, well, they're hypocrites. Here they are saying that if we would have lived back then, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. But they made a mistake. Look at, look at what he says in verse 30. If we had been living in those days, in the days of our what? Fathers. Christ picked up on that. They are their father's son. But in hypocrisy, they said they wouldn't, they wouldn't have killed the prophets, shedding the blood of the prophets. No. Just shortly thereafter, they would be guilty of shedding the blood, murdering their Messiah. That's how hypocritical how big a hypocrite they are. Then verse 31, Consequently, this is Christ speaking now, He says, Consequently, you bear witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. He's saying you identified yourself with them and truly you are. You have the same thing inside of you that they had. And then He says in verse 32, Fill up the measure of the guilt in your fathers. What does that mean? And see, that's why I'm going here because it's talking about they killed the prophets. And in a minute we're going to see about filling up the measure of wickedness. He says, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You know what he's talking about? How could they, in the most ultimate way, fill up the cup that their fathers only went halfway with? Executing Christ. This is, Christ knew what was going to happen. That's what he's saying. Go ahead and fill it up. Go ahead and do it. You're, he's telling them. He knew them. He knew that he, he saw the inside of a person. He says, you're going to do this. Go ahead and do it. Fill it up. And then he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape, escape the sentence of hell? See, everybody shows Jesus Christ as this little wimpy, pencil neck. Um, Mama's boy. And look what he's saying to these people. And I bet nobody was talking back either. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets, wise men, and scribes, 
Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in the synagogues. Who's one of the prophets? Who's one of the apostles got scourged? Paul. Apostle Paul. And you'll persecute and, and uh, you will scourge in the synagogues and persecute from city to city. And upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. What's that about? Who was the first martyr? Who was the first person to die? Abel. And he was killed by an unrighteous brother. That was the first one. Now, when you get to um, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, this is not Zechariah, the prophet, who, who wrote. This is uh, another Zechariah that was killed between the uh, in the temple. And you'll find it in... Second uh, Chronicles, and in the Hebrew Bible, the last book is Second Chronicles. So he's saying, starting with the first murder, which was Abel, and he goes all the way to the last book in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, and gives another person to the last one that was murdered. And he's saying, the blood of all of them are going to be on you because they did what? They murdered Jesus Christ. Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. He says, truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. The one he's talking to. Do you have a point or a question? <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. Well, that works into English, but not in the Greek or or the Hebrew. But it's not, that's pretty neat uh, with the with the English. Of course, uh, the Alpha. You know, a, the, yes. Did you have a? We're getting to that next. Yeah, they went from where did they leave when they left Thessalonica? Berea. And this is this is a this is pretty that's pretty neat, isn't it? it? It has to do I want to go a little deeper with uh, murdering the prophets. This is just how wicked man is and how faithful God is. He keeps sending prophets. He keeps sending communicators of truth to the people, and rather than the people heeding the warning and listening, well we'll just kill the prophets. We'll just kill the communicators. And God sends them over and over again until finally there's a time when His grace runs out and justice will fall. It happens every time, and this is something we need to learn for sure. And now what you were talking about, Michael, is right here. And drove us out. Many times the apostles had to flee for their lives, and usually it was the religious crowd who were driving them out. Religious people can be the most vicious, murdering people on earth. They hate grace. And they hate those who are grace-oriented. I didn't say believers. Believers can be murderers too, but I'm talking about the religious crowd. I think I can't help but think of some of the, uh, what happened in the Crusades. Are y'all familiar with the Crusades? 
Do you know who was behind the Crusades? The Catholic Church and Big Papa. And they would give them indulgences. You know, if you, if you join and go on this crusade, then I'm going to absolve you for your sins. And they, 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 they joined up by the thousands. And they went into Europe. The idea is that they were going to try to uh, stem the tide of Islam. But they didn't only uh, kill Muslims. They killed Jews also. And we get a bad rap, I say we being Christians, and they say, well, Christians have their skeletons in the closet also. When we talk about Muslims and their terrorism and so forth, they say, well, look at the Christians, what they did in the Crusades. I don't consider those Catholics being Christians because they, they didn't believe in Christ. They were not Christians. They were unbelievers. Of course, you try to explain that to somebody, and it goes right over their head. So, religion is uh, full of people who hate grace, and they even hate those who are grace-oriented. If you had not found that out yet, you haven't been talking to many people, especially religious people. Because when you take grace out of the box, that's what God's about right there, grace. It shines light on their dunghill of human good, and they don't like that. That's what they're depending on to get to heaven. That is what is so important to them. And you talk about grace, and you're essentially saying all these things that you've done that you're so proud of is a bunch of crapola. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I'm talking about. The Bible calls it dung. And they are not pleasing God. Now, this, of course, is an example of litotes. <laughs> Y'all remember what that figure of speech is? Litotes? Hmm. It's, 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 okay, it looks like some of you do, most of you maybe. It's expressing something, uh, understating something to accentuate a positive. I always use, this one always comes to my, my mind. If you were a teenager and went and saw Elvis Presley at a concert and you went home and your, and your parents said, well, how was he? And you said, he's not a bad singer. What would you really mean? He is a great singer. And when it says that uh, they are not pleasing to God, that is an unbelievable understatement. You see, when you know what it means is he is livid. He is anger. Do you think that God is sitting up in heaven right now seeing all the atrocities that are going on even in our own country? And, huh, huh, well, it's another day. No. The Bible says His wrath is being stored up. He's waiting for the iniquity to reach its point where His grace ends and His judgment falls. And when Jesus Christ returns at the second advent, all that wrath that has been stored up is going to be released. And it's going to be the worst time that there ever was, ever, or ever will be. Those who set themselves against God's people also set themselves against God. Paul knew this very well. 
Okay, let's turn to Acts 26. We'll get through this if we can quickly. I'm tempted not to go there, but I like to make every minute count. Y'all know where Acts is? Acts 26. Acts 26 is where the where Saul got a wake up call. Acts 26:10. Here you have Paul talking to King Agrippa, and he's explaining some things to him. And in verse 10, he's explaining, he says, and, just, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. This was Saul persecuting Christians. And as I punished them, often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Why was he first furiously enraged? Because they would not deny Christ. And he would have them executed, and he would even pursue them into other cities. While thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. So he was on a mission. He was going out and he was going to get some more Christians to uh, to, uh, persecute him. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. What do you think that bright light was? It was the same thing that the disciples saw when they went on the mount, mountain of transfiguration. It was the resurrected Jesus Christ. And when he had, <clears throat> and we, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, in the Hebrew dialect, you see, they all fell to the ground. When you see something like that, that's about all you can do. And this voice said, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" You see, and we hadn't got to that verse tonight, but we're going to see that these people, when they, these Judaizers, when these negative unbelievers reject the gospel is one thing, but when they go on a crusade to have others reject the gospel also, then they're affecting everyone. And this is what Paul was trying to do. And so this voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the Christians. But let me tell you something. When, perso- when Christians are persecuted, Christ takes it personally. It's the same as if they're attacking Him. You have it right here. He said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Remember that? Huh? He, was, he was kicking against authority, just like a, an ox or a cow. They, they start getting off in the wrong direction, you take a, a goad or a whip, you know, a little deal with a goad, a little sh- sticker, a sharp thing on the end, you'll poop, you pop them, and they'll kick at it. Quit, leave me alone, I want to do it my way. Phew, boy, you hit them with that goad. And he's saying, <laughs> I think it's, well, I think it's funny. What is Paul doing? He's kicking against the goads. 
He wants to do it His way. And when He says, Paul, it's hard to kick against the goats. He's saying, you better watch out. Is you going to get it? Did he get it? God struck him blind. Was it hard for Paul to kick against the goats? He wasn't going to do it and get by with it, was he? And I said, Who art thou, Lord? <laughs> well, he's calling him Lord. <laughs> and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You're persecuting me. Yes, my Yeah. <laughs> or it could be worse. It could be euphemistically a donkey. <laughs> you dumb donkey. <laughs> Here you have in the Greek a me. Present active indicative. Does that I am strike a chord with you? When Moses asked Jehovah, he said, what, what, what should I tell him that your name is? He says, you tell him I am that I am. And Jesus Christ and his resurrected body stopped him and said, you're kicking against the goads. And he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, which he is doing there, but also to the things in which I will appear to you or deliver to him. God's grace. God's grace, his power, his justice, his righteousness. Don't you love reading the Bible? Don't you love to see these accounts? God took the worst sinner by Paul's own admission and made him the greatest apostle. But he had to get his attention first, didn't he? And Paul had a choice. He could continue to try to kick against the goad, but he found that's a little difficult. He says they are not pleasing to God. God was not pleased with Paul. And when he says he wasn't pleased, he means he made a personal trip to have a, a little attitude adjustment with Paul. Don't we have a great God? Well, uh, <clears throat> we're out of time and we'll pick this up next time. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to fellowship in your word. What encouragement. What an inspiration to know what kind of God we have that cares about us, that can even take the worst sinner and make them the best apostle. That gives us hope. Help us, helps us realize that you can do great things with us because of who and what you are. Help us to remember this and to stand firm and see you work on our behalf. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.